my goodness. Uh, we haven't done this in what, three weeks, maybe four? I can't even remember. Hello. You've, you've been a busy bee. I know. I've been traveling. And then we were supposed to podcast last week. And I was at the Hilton at LAX airport playing in a backgammon tournament of all things. And I couldn't get Wi-Fi. I couldn't get, do Zoom. We couldn't tape. So our apologies for being MIA, but we've got so much to do in the next few weeks that we're both trying to load through a lot of stuff. But happy holidays to everybody. And what a time to go to the movies, right? Don't you agree? This is it. Uh, there's there's so much. There's so much for everyone on every level. I know, totally. It's that um, time of year. All right. Now, also, I wanted to ask you about this. Now, you're two generations behind on this one, but I read this great article about Martha Marcy May Marlene, which, by the way, was Elizabeth Olsen's foray into film, but also some people consider it to be, it was released in 2011, and it follows the story of this damaged woman who really seems to be like 20 in my mind when I'm watching her as she just struggles to figure out the difference between reality and hallucinations after she went into a cult for a number of years where no one knew where she was. She realigns with her sister who's been sort of MIA because they couldn't find her, Lucy. And some people say it's the most twisted psychological thriller of all time. Okay. You didn't see it, right? I haven't seen it. I, just I haven't about it. seen it either, but the more I've been reading, <laughs> we talking about this, we're talking about this because I think what I want to do is put it on the table and put it out to our listeners to say, if you've seen it, I want to put a discussion about it. I'm going to watch it. And I want to put a discussion about it up on Facebook or maybe even Twitter. And I really want to start doing that on some of the films we might not be reviewing, but we should be talking. I don't know how I missed this 10 years ago. It's, it was, I mean, it was a festival circuit darling, but it wasn't a big movie. Well, it's funny. It was a festival circuit darling, but more and more, it might be one of those movies that later on becomes the hit that it should have been when it first launched. So I am going to watch it. And if anybody has watched it, please email us at screenthoughts at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought. And let us know if you want to talk about it. And I do want to get a discussion going because there's a lot of buzz about it, uh, about the 10-year anniversary of it. And have you noticed that they keep having these anniversary things where movies are being brought back 10 and 25 years later and they're reconnecting with uh, moviegoers now? Have you noticed that? Well, I've noticed that they're doing like reunions of cast and things like that. And big movies have anniversary showings all the time. I went to... A Singing in the Rain anniversary showing. Where was that? That was here in LA. It was a lot of fun to see that movie in the theaters. That was a blast. But they do that all the time. We went to a Rebecca anniversary showing on original Nitrous film. Uh, So we were all a little afraid. There was like a you know, 3% chance that the theater was going to go up in flames um, while we were watching that movie. <laughs> but, the, well, well, but well worth it, even if you Yeah, the saturation. Exactly. I mean, honestly, like you, you, when you watch it, you understand why they took the risk and they printed on that film because it's, I mean, it's so beautiful. But yeah, they, they've been doing a lot of those. It's a lot of fun. Well, anyway, uh, so I'm going to put that out there to our listeners. There's something new we might start doing where we just talk about a film, not necessarily reviewing it, but sort of bringing a lot of information together around it and maybe even do a chat room about it on Clubhouse. So let us know what you think. We're anxious to do it. But the first thing we're going to do today is King Richard, which indeed. Okay. First of all, you know, I, I used to play 
pretty strong competitive tennis back in the 70s and 80s. I was never really a huge fan of the um, Williams sisters, but this is the story of Richard Williams, the father, and how he brought his two daughters to where they were competing at the top level of the entire world. That so would be Serena and Venus for exactly, those of you who, are. Yeah, who cannot maybe. Yeah. Which interestingly enough, people are saying, oh, this is going to be a trilogy. First we do his story. Then we're going to do Venus's. Then we're going to do Serena's. I don't think so. I mean, I think this. I don't think so either. I haven't heard that, but. Now the family did cooperate, except for he didn't. The father didn't. And the two. I'm shocked. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. First of all, I just got to start with Will Smith, who plays Richard Williams. And the thing about Will Smith, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but he's either shows up and sort of walks through a part or he rises to that occasion. And maybe it's when the part challenges him in a certain way. I don't know, but he's, they're talking about him for an Oscar contender and everything else, but get this, he divided, he was paid $40 million for the film. Those are the earnings from the film actual launching. Okay. Uh, Guess what he did with the money. Well, I know what he did with the money. So you should tell our listeners. No, you can tell him you go for it. No, you tell him. Okay, he divided it amongst all the actors as bonuses for them, because most of the actors in there you've never heard of before, and you might not hear of them again. This is sort of like a one-shot wonder, if you ask me. I Um, thought they were good. I think they'll they'll probably work for this. A lot of roles for for them moving forward. That's a lot of money, and good for him. Can we just do a shout out? I I like Will Smith. I think I think you're right in the sense that there are the roles that he's cast for and there are the roles he goes for. And I think there's a difference when you're watching him, right? When he's put into a role rather than something he's gone after, right? When he went after Ali, he went after it. Um, when he went after Pursuit of Happiness, you could tell this is one of those roles. Uh, yeah. This, this yeah. script came out a couple of years ago. It was the top of the blacklist, which is uh, an inside industry voting list of industry executives vote on the best lists of the year that haven't been produced. And this was the top of that, that year. I think the writer, Zach Balin is fantastic. And he, unbelievable. I actually think the script was stronger than the movie ended up being. That's exactly Um, what I I think so too. I do. um, But the movie I think is really good. I, you know, structurally I had some issues with how the movie, it just feels a little long and it feels a little the pacing's off a bit, but I had that issue uh, with Ronaldo Marcus Green's first movie, Monsters of Men, which is is vignettes. Uh, it's a it's a really strong movie, but it's all it's three separate stories that are not tied to each other in any it's way. It's funny because I felt that it was challenging direction and cinematography both. I felt like, and part of that is they're trying to make tennis players that you can't make on a mm-hmm. screen the two you know the two girls playing those roles they're you know they're trying to make sure they look like they could be competing at that level and as somebody who played tennis i don't think they did but oh i had no idea so yeah. that's fine <laughs> but i think part of it was the direction i think there were way too many you know they should have been inside shots more much closer up you know i didn't get the feeling for what was going on during it. But the other thing is two things. One, the world is challenging them in that they left out the first part of Richard Williams' story. He left his first family, basically went out and said he was buying a bike for his kid and never came back. And yeah, it's not in the movie. No, I didn't make the cut. Okay. So it really starts with his incredible commitment to family, 
to the five girls that were his, the older one having been from another marriage by his wife. But you fall in love with him in this strange sort of way. And mm-hmm. but the thing that I recognize is I've been saying a lot as I get older, we are never defined by our best moment or our worst moment. We're defined by the moments in between. And if ever there was something that fits that bill, this enactment of Richard Williams' trajectory is that, you know, the best of intentions, he breaks your heart when he's passing out this 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 brochure he made about his kids. He has no idea the realm that he's playing in and the racism and and the and challenges that that they face. So I recommend seeing it, don't you? Oh, I I loved it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was I, I here's the thing. It's it's the Will Smith show. Uh the whole movie is well the Will put, Smith yeah. show. Uh and you know I think in the script that was downplayed a little bit and I think they made a commitment when they decided to make the movie with Will Smith, that this was going to be his vehicle. And I think that's part of why the direction is what it is because the focus isn't on Serena and Venus, right? It's around them, right? They're the vehicle, but it's about Richard and Richard. It's, it's the Richard show. And that's all that the movie identifies that. And I I think it was also about racism and in, in the tennis industry, as much as the Richard show, I think it was also about, how much harder it is if you're a person of color to come up in a sport where there are no people of color. Oh, and, I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying it's not also about other things. I'm saying the movie revolves around Will Smith and Richard. That's where the movie focuses, right? You don't get inside Serena's head. You don't get inside Venus's head. You get a moment with his wife, but that's about it. Right. I think two that I yeah. can count them barely. Yes, I but agree totally. I think they committed that this was going to be his vehicle and oh. that's how we were going to experience it. And absolutely racism is a, is a piece of that. There's no way to approach an all white sport, a lily white sport like tennis and be a black person trying to bring your daughters into this world without experiencing I that. Agree. And I, I think he did a beautiful job. I mean, the lisp got on my nerves, but like when you see Richard Williams speak, he's pretty spot on. Well, right? it's funny because there are a number of uh, moments in the film that are that actually, you can go on YouTube and find them. One yeah. is when, when Venus is being interviewed and he basically shuts the interview down and says, you're not yeah. going to take a black girl and, and take away her confidence. And when you watch the actual film and then you watch the way they portrayed it of equal value, I mean, they, I thought they did a really good job. But you mentioned earlier how great the script was. I have two quotes and sometimes I bring quotes to the table because I think they're so awesome. So get this. There's one of them. This is from Richard, of course. The most strongest, the most powerful, the most dangerous creature on this whole earth is a woman who knows how to think. Ain't nothing she can't do. <laughs> it's like, OK, that works for me. And then it's his wife who says to him, unlike you, I don't need the world to tell me I'm great. And it's so funny. That is his driving force. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's his driving force. And it's said in one sentence halfway through the film. And she nails it. And there's this moment of pause. She delivers it with perfection. I thought she did a great job. Oh, I think I think everyone in the movie is great. Honestly, it's interesting to me because. I think the closest comp to Richard Williams I can think of is Joe Kennedy, (laughs) right? This is a guy who put everything on the line for his kids. He said, you're going to, you're going to be the greatest. 
and I'm going to make sure I'm going to make damn sure that that happens. And everything happened according to his plan. And Joe Kennedy did the same thing. He had a lot more to work with. Right. He was white. He had a lot of money. But you you look at what Richard Williams went through and it was everything was for his kids. Ultimately, it was for him. Right. They were the vessel. Absolutely. Like, yep. I, everything he predicted came to pass. Yeah. And it's absolutely remarkable. And both Venus and Serena watched the movie and they said it was a really jarring experience because it felt like watching home videos. What's right. Inter- what's interesting reliving their past. Is, um, um, whether he watched it or not. It, the last I, I looked it up again before we did this podcast around it. And Serena had sent him an email and asked him if he watched it. And he said, not yet. Now, I don't know if I believe that. But he was not a part of this film, whereas the rest of the family was. Now, I don't know if they're estranged now or I don't know what the deal is with their family relationship, but mm-hmm. the family did participate in this. And that's something, too, because whenever you're doing sort of a narrative account of someone's life and they're so integrated into having a say as to what's mm-hmm. in it and what's not, I don't know, it's borderlines on problematic. Yeah. I mean, you look at like the Robinson movie like his wife had final say over everything and that movie is pretty saccharine and this is a movie where maybe it's best that he didn't have a say because they got to be a little bit not very honest but maybe a little bit more honest i in the end i loved him but there's a moment that i liked him it's that i could understand how he became the person he became i i think that's very true i think also you can't help but love a man who's willing to go to the lengths that he did for his kids, but it, right? Well, and whatever but his motivations. Say, well, I was going to say, it, was it really for his kids or was it for him? Whatever his motivations, his family benefited, right? He was adamant that he had two Michael Jordans in his pocket and he was right, right? That, you know, these girls are were the top of tennis for years. Well, uh, and Serena yeah, is yeah. has been called the greatest of all time Many, many times. Yeah. Um, I think her and Simone Biles are are up there for tying for greatest of all time. And Will played the other, right? He played Ali. <laughs> so. I was at a tennis tournament yesterday. I'm in Florida. And um, a friend of mine's granddaughter was playing. And we went to this tennis tournament. And there was this one young man of color. I think he was probably 12 or 13. And his father, a black man, was sitting on the sidelines and I happened to be sitting like three rows behind him watching. And by the way, his son was such a beautiful player. Oh, my God. Poetry in motion, if you ask me. This man comes up and says to him, your son's playing really well. And he says, thank you. And then he goes, did you see the Serena movie? Did you see the Williams movie? And he, the man looks up, turns around for all of us to hear and says, you know, you're the fifth person today who's asked me that question. Ugh. But I don't see anybody else asking anybody else here if they saw the movie and he wasn't mad. He was just looking at him like, yes, I'm a black man, but you know what? This is not my story. And it was so poignant. And I wanted to bring it up today because this is the Williams story. It is not a person of colors necessary story. And so, you know, I mean, if you, well, it is, it is a person of color story. It might not be every person. No, exactly. But I think that's what the guy was saying was, look, don't mistake me for that guy. It's not, that's not who I am. But also if you look at Arthur Asher's trajectory into tennis, which was two decades before this one, um, it was a totally different trajectory, you know? So 
uh, done Arthur with- Ashe is a fascinating story. Yeah, I actually um, knew I, him. Yeah, you he, knew him? Well, he was my one of the touring pros for my father, and um, <gasps> yeah, I sat next to him at dinner many times. He had a bleeding ulcer, so he oh. could only eat chicken and mashed potatoes pretty much, and he was very quiet. And I liked him, but I felt like he was there was a lot going on that he was, it was just simmering beneath the surface, you know, and that's how he got AIDS is he um, had a bleeding ulcer. So they gave him a, a, a blood, blood transfusion. transfusion and that's how he got it. But, but I'm just saying that when I, when the guy said that the other, I think a bunch of us in the, in the neighborhood that he was speaking in thought he's right. I did. I looked at him and thought, Oh, yay, another, here comes another Williams kid. You know, no, it was, it's a great movie. It should be seen with your family. Because there's mm-hmm. so many lessons in there, too, for kids that are doing anything that you do to do it well and to be committed to it. And did you write in your journal today? Did you do this today? Which was totally outside the boundaries of playing tennis. He insisted that they do well in school. He insisted that they not just play tennis. You know, there were many. Oh, he pulled them out of the competitive circuit for years know, because he wanted them to be well-rounded kids. Well, and, and also he didn't think that circuit was going to work well for them. Yeah. Well, and he was looking at her, their predecessors and all of them burned out by the age of 20. Right. Yeah, and he didn't yeah. want that for his kids. And but it's a great film for a family. It's a great it, film for kids in their early teens to watch with their parents to discuss some of the things that happen in it. It's also great to get a serious 80s and 90s fix. I had such a blast watching these girls rock out to Whitney Houston. I was so thrilled with the clothes, with the music. The music's great. And also I saw Belfast, which we're not going to talk about today. The music, the music is, first of all, it's Van Morrison, like at his best. Yeah. And um, anyway, so. All right. So I highly recommend it. I think you are too. And, yeah. It's um, on HBO max. Um, yep. You guys can watch it there. It's uh, he's definitely going to get, I think he'll get a nom for best yeah. actor for sure. But um, do you think it'll get a nomination for best film? I do. I don't know. So. I don't know I don't if it'll get best yeah. picture, but I think he'll definitely get yeah. a nod for best actor. Yeah. And by the way, he is the only star standing out, including Serena and Venus. They all play their parts very well, but they are. It's not like you no, remember it's his them. Story. The, yeah, it is. It's entirely the, the Richard story, which is right. why it's called King Richard. Right. You don't hear the Williams name in the title. Yeah, right. Exactly. It, it is about him. OK. And then we decided to do two today and we're going to do tick, tick, boom. Now, I have one question to start this off for you. All right. Is Lin-Manuel Miranda single handedly going to bring back stories told through music in cinema? I mean, I don't think single-handedly because it's not the only musical done this year. Oh, okay. But... All right. I'll give Spielberg a moment for West Side Story, which we're going to talk also, about. Also, Dear Evan time. Hansen, big, big flop, but also came out this year. But is he, and also, is he only going to be a storyteller with music? I mean, I doubt it. I highly I doubt he, it. This I is think the third one, the third one, one, two, three. With a third what? The third time Miranda's coming to the screen with film. No, he did music for Moana. He's done music for Encanto. He, I mean, no, but is he ever going to, I'm wanting him to do a film, a drama about the neighborhoods or, you know, something, you know, something. Give the man a break. This is his directorial debut. (laughs) And how how did you think he did? I thought it was fantastic. Um, Let me preface here. Two things. One, 
I love musicals, as I think most of you are aware of now. <laughs> and two, I love Jonathan Larson. So I've been excited for this movie for a long time. I've seen the musical Tick, Tick, Boom. This is very different from that. For those of you who are familiar with the musical of Tick, Tick, Boom, this is kind of more the original iteration of what Jonathan Larson wrote as Boho Days, which was the original musical that then became Tick, Tick, Boom after his death. But so it's it really is more the one man show version. Tick, Tick, Boom was later turned into a three-person show. Yeah. And too um, bad, too bad. Uh, you know, talk about a life lost way too early. When you see this, it's like, oh my God, how could we have lost him so early? But what did you think about Andrew Garfield in the role? He's he's incredible. He's an absolute marvel. You know, Andrew Garfield was not a singer before this. Lynn saw him in Angels in America and kind of, I and you guys can listen to the interviews because they'll tell this story better than I do. But apparently there's there's like one guy in New York who does physical therapy and all that for like all the highbrow celebrities and rich people. Uh, and of course, he he was working on Lynn and he, and Lynn asked him if Andrew Garfield could sing. And as a good friend to Andrew, he was like, yeah, Andrew's the best singer I've ever heard. <laughs> and then immediately afterwards, he called him and was like, Andrew, you need to take some singing lessons. Lynn manuels going to call you. You know, it's so funny you say that because um, Angel Elgort plays Tony in West Side Story. And Spielberg was saying, I saw him dance. I saw him on a YouTube. I saw Angel mm -hmm. dancing. I didn't know if he could sing, which, by the way, he can sing. He's got a number of, of very successful songs out, actually, that he wrote. Anyway, so he called him and asked him if he would come in and try out for the part. And Angel went in and he wasn't feeling well, but mm -hmm. he didn't tell anybody. He just showed up anyway. So he was so Spielberg said he was two octaves too high and he just. Mm -hmm said, thank you for coming. And they parted ways. And then someone said to him, look, the guy was really sick. That's not his real voice. Oh. <laughs> and so five days later, Spielberg called him and said, were you sick? And he said, yeah, I was. And he said, well, come back in. And he came back in. And within two minutes, he said he knew he was right for the role that he could, you know, some Spielberg's of got a nice long history of casting people in the room. <laughs> well, he does. It, it, well, to say nothing of you know, the of so many actors, you don't really know the depth of their capability in other areas mm -hmm. besides the drama or whatever. So, well, yeah. what's fascinating about this role is, and, and I think about Jonathan as a person, is it's really easy to write and believe that this person was very unlikable, right? That they're so arrogant and invested in themselves that there's it, it turns other people off, but Jonathan and how Andrew portrays Jonathan was so charismatic and so magnetic in it. And yes, they believe in themselves, but it's so charming and beautiful to see that this person who is about to turn 30, who is still working in a diner. And they address this at the very beginning of like, there's a difference between being in your twenties and wanting to save musical theater and working in a diner to being in your thirties working in a diner whose hobby is writing music. Yeah, right. Yeah. And Jonathan was terrified of this and they do a beautiful job. I mean, there, I, I am such a lightweight, right. But there, there is a moment, there's a song in this show called Sunday and it's obviously an homage to Stephen Sondheim, Jonathan's mentor, but it, it realizes his dream in this beautiful, magical realism way. And I'm sobbing through this song that I've heard a million times because I know the music, 
did not think that was going to be the song that made me cry in the show. But I mean, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And well, it's really well handled by Lynn as a director. Also, that Sondheim should die just before this film really is to market. He, he got to see it. Um, yeah, his, but his voice so is actually parallel. in the movie. Yeah, but it's so um, parallel to Jonathan Larson's own story. Well, and it's it's really interesting. The movie is so meta. For those of you who are not musical theater fans, I apologize for my incessant passion here. But Jonathan Larson came into musical theater at a really, really dark time for Broadway. There were not good shows on in musical theater. It seemed like Broadway was dying. All you were seeing were like these Disney reenactments of like Beauty and the Beast. Those were the big musicals at the time. There wasn't anything new and interesting when Rent hit. And this is this movie is entirely about it, it has nothing to do with Rent. You just know that Rent is coming. Even for those of you who didn't know, Jonathan Larson wrote Rent. Which it's, is, you know, I mean, talk about generational a yeah. cult movie. I mean, that forever in time will be a movie people watch. Absolutely. It, it completely changed the landscape of musical yeah, theater, it did. right? It yep. introduced rock in a real way to musical storytelling and it introduced a new generation. To I was going to say theater. it was also my daughter's generation and they and my generation yeah. to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, yeah. They, it re reignited the love of musical theater yeah. for a new generation. And, and Lynn manuel Miranda once, is one of they those. They saw it 10 times. They, oh yeah. yeah. And Lynn admits wholeheartedly, this is what made him realize this was a job he could do and that he wanted to do. Jonathan had the same experience, right? John, and you see this happen in the movie. Jonathan was stuck and couldn't get his musicals moving forward until Stephen Sondheim walked into his life and Stephen Sondheim became his mentor. And before Stephen Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim had Oscar Hammerstein, right? And this was the cyclical nature of Rodgers and Hammerstein now passing on to Sondheim and Sondheim passing on to Larson and Larson now passing on posthumously to Manuel and Lin-Manuel making this movie. And Sondheim sent him a, a letter saying, maybe now I've done enough to pay it back to those who, who gave it to me. Right. Well, you you making this movie and showing the world Jonathan's story, maybe I've done enough to reimburse those who gave it all to me. Um, and I just thought that was so beautiful. And it's so meta because it's all in the movie, too. No, but do you think that, I don't know that this is going to get much action in the coming month? What do you think? Uh, for awards? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think Andrew's going to get nominated. No question. You do. Um, okay. He's uh, he's so endearing. He's so beautiful. And even though he's a good singer, he's not, you know, he's not a trained singer, but that it really has this charming quality to it when you're watching him, because you know, it's so heartfelt and so deep. And he was mourning the loss of his mother when he went into filming. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so obviously you, you, you know, from the outset, you know, they, they announced at the outset that Jonathan died a week before rent pre premiered. Um, not off Broadway. This was in its nascent stages and that every performance of rent was dedicated to him. But so, you know, that's going to come, but the movie ends long before he's even started writing rent. Right. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. And Andrew had this grief in the back of his mind. Right. And he's going through losing all of his friends to AIDS. I mean, this was right at the height of the AIDS epidemic and he's in the musical theater world. He's losing a lot of people around him. And that's what you're seeing him process in the movie. And Andrew was able to really 
utilize and process the grief of losing his mother through the process of filming this movie. But it also, um, I read something somewhere, it also speaks to his sense of urgency around doing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, apparently in the first draft of Boho Days, which then became Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, there's a consistent line over and over of my my heart is pounding and feels like it's going to explode. Yeah. And they had to take it out because it was too prescient because Jonathan actually died of an aortic aneurysm. Everybody thinks he died of AIDS, but he didn't. He died of an aortic aneurysm. And it's just too on the nose. Like people think they made it up and added it into the show, but they didn't. Wow. So maybe he uh, But was- it's beautifully done. Honestly, like I, I walked away and I was like, do I just love this because I'm a fan? Or do I also love this because it's really well done? And I think Lynn did a great job. It's but interesting this does because- not surprise me. I mean, first of all, he's so talented. He, he has three levels that most people don't have, both emotional levels, attention to other people, intuitive levels. I mean, mm-hmm. whenever I hear him speak or anything, you see him in interviews or on YouTubes or anything. Mm-hmm. You just see these additional levels and say, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. I wish I had that. It's he's, amazing. He's certainly multifaceted. And he utilizes storytelling in the way that it was originally intended, right? This is Jonathan's personal story. It's a one-man show, and it's him recounting what's happened. And when they adapted it into a three-person show, it's a lot less cohesive. And hmm, going back to that original intent of the of the show it's actually weirdly cinematic because you get to cut to the real story of what's happening rather than just someone on stage telling you about it. So I loved it. I highly recommend it. I got to ask Bradley Whitford, isn't he showing up in the most interesting place? It's like, what are you doing here? You're here. Well, oh God, what are you Lynn doing is what are you- a big West Wing fan. So, you know, that. he took the opportunity. He, it is the weirdest Sondheim impression and he doesn't sound anything like him. Exactly. And you get to hear Sondheim's voice, actual voice later in the movie. Um, and it's his, it's his real voice. Um, and for those of, there's so many Easter eggs in this for people who are fans of Jonathan Larson and fans of musical theater. Like you're going to run. I, I had to go like visit a website to see all the cameos I missed. Cause there's tons of them. There are so many, uh, musical theater people in this movie. It's insane, but it's a lot of fun. And Bradley Whitford clearly took a lot of joy in getting to play Sondheim, but Richard but, Kind is also fantastic in it but, as well. But also what's so funny about that is after the West Wing ended in the early 2000s, Bradley Whitford disappeared for five or 10 years. I don't remember how many. And then all of a sudden, he, you know, he's in so much now and he's getting really meaty parts. And I think he had to grow older. So you didn't see him as Josh Lyman anymore. I think that, and I think he's willing to make fun of himself a little bit um, and, wasn't, and wasn't buy before. into yeah. the, yeah, I was on West Wing. <laughs> yeah. I'm that guy on West Wing. Yeah. I mean, you know, a little bit William Shatner-esque, yeah. but not yeah. quite so exactly. uh, little Alec Baldwin. You but know? I think, you know, I think when he aged, it was like, okay, nobody's going to think we're sitting in the White House anymore, but because he was Except such, uh, in The Handmaid's Tale when there's a scene with him and Wait, oh, when when Bradley Whitford is? Yeah, he has to um, have their ceremony together. I was yeah. like, President Bartlett's going to walk in here and be like, what are you doing, Josh and Zoe? <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bartlett would not like that scene at all. Not yeah. be okay. It was yeah. not okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm a yes, huge, I highly I'm a huge recommend fan the movie. of his. Yeah. And also I follow him on Twitter. He's very entertaining and politically in line with me on Twitter. So I like Oh, him. that's good. Well, I highly, highly, highly recommend Tick, Tick, Boom. And write in and let me know if I'm crazy and I just like this because I'm a fan or if, you know, those of you who are less fans of musicals or maybe only kind of fans of musicals 
like it as well. Cause I think the storytelling is really oh. beautifully done and well handled. And bravo to Lynn for taking on something so personal to him He's and being able to make it prolific. universal. I, see, I thought he would do something once every five years. You know, but he's not. No. He's, really he's off to the races, yep. man. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He does. Uh-huh. He and it's interesting because I found the parallels between Jonathan's story and Hamilton's story so fascinating because he's he's kind of obsessed with people who have an early expiration date. You know, who are literally running out of time, and both stories are about men who seem to know that their internal clock is ticking. And they are running out of time and they, they need to get everything out before that clock goes great, off. That's a great parallel. I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't read that anywhere, anything. I think it's really strong. Absolutely. Which fits in with what you're saying is the tagline is for the whole thing is how much time do we have to do something great? And I think that's what the whole movie is about. And it's interesting to me because everybody loves La La Land, but they didn't like the ending, right? This kind of... I think explains Everybody did not love La La Land. I am one of the people who did not. Okay. Most people love La La Land. (laughs) That's fair. And they did, but they didn't love the ending because it's not a storybook fairy tale, happy ending. They don't end up together. And I think this movie does the job of the heavy lifting of explaining why, right? That there are some things that are more important than the happy ending, Mm -hmm. right? And Jonathan had that inside him and he, he was willing to pay whatever it cost to get that out. Right. And I think you'll experience that when you're watching the movie. Okay. Well, high recommendations from you for sure. <laughs> and I actually, since I haven't seen it, although you might not have known it from the way I was just talking about it, um, <laughs> I definitely am going to go see it now. And probably I would have skipped it because there's so many things we want to do before year end. We're going to be yes. doing, we're going to be taping our year end podcast, which will probably be a couple hours because there's so much to go over. Oh my God. There's so much of this I year. Know, and we were going to tape it next week, but now we need, we need a little more time to see a few more things. Yeah. Sorry guys. Like there's there just so many stuff. movies that just came out. I know. And, and everybody's sort of polling it in. But the other thing is I've done a lot of the um, fourth season of Yellowstone. Oh, I'm going to be writing something about it. It is so fabulous. If you aren't a fan and you want to be a fan, start now. Absolutely. Also, in addition to that, the second season of The Great is out on Hulu. For those I don't even of know you- what that is. What's that about? Oh, oh, Hollister, this is my favorite show on television. What? Um, Wait, what's Hands it down. Hands down, it's called The Great. Okay. It is a satire on Catherine the Great and her takeover of Russia in the 1700s. It stars Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt. And it is the smartest show on TV. Really? It is absolutely hysterical. It's dark comedy. It's satire. It's honestly breathtakingly hilarious and also like, unbelievably violent and jarring, but it's, it's just fantastic. It's written by was the second season coming out. Second season is out now. So Um, we should go back and watch the first. So, uh, well, I have, but everyone should watch this because it's just fantastic. Um, And I recommend it without any reservations to truly everyone. Just make sure you go in with a good sense of humor when you're watching it. Okay. Well, we can do that. I have a, I think I have the, one of the funniest senses of humor of anybody. I think you have a great sense of humor. I don't think you like fun very much, but I do think you have a great sense of humor. (laughs) Well, I don't like, you know, like stupid humor. I like, I don't like stupid humor humor either, but sometimes there's a place for that. Like, you know, dumb and dumber. 
Okay. Great movie. Not so much. It is. So it is. Go back and watch it again. By the again. way, everyone I know says that. I'm just telling you from my personal experience <laughs> perspective, not so much. But anyway, we again, have every- with the fun. <laughs> Okay, there we are with the fun. Okay, this fun girl is signing off now and we'll be talking next week. And if there's anything you want us to be seeing or anything you think we should be talking about in terms of all the stuff that's coming out for the award season, let us know. And like, don't worry, because we've got, we're going to have West Side Story covered. We've got Belfast. We've got to go see Spencer. the Gucci movie, Spencer. I saw the I Gucci mean, movie. Oh my God. I haven't oh seen the God. Gucci movie yet, know, so we'll talk about that. But we have lots and lots on our list. We know that's why we we have to push it a week, but if there's anything specific, please let us know because yeah. we'd love to. We're all over talk it. About it with like you guys. glue, like glue, my friends. Okay, we'll talk to you next week, everybody. Bye. Bye.